Morning. Wes. Give me some water. Thank you. Okay, so here's how we're going to start off today before we get into the message, into the Word of God. We want to welcome some new members. Okay, so I'm going to have the Marquez family come up, if they would right now. We're going to need this back on. Hi. Are you speaking or has Ben? <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. I thought we worked it out, but you were coming up to the mic, so I thought maybe there was a change. Okay. Okay. Here's a <laughs> all right. So uh, Ben and Anna are going to be coming into membership today, so we're very excited about that. I thought it would be good just to have Ben introduce his family to us. They've been here, by the way, for two years. They came as a result of door hangers. As a, yeah, so you think the door hangers don't work? They do, yeah, they work. They work. We got this beautiful family from simply handing out door hangers, okay? And so they came two Easter's ago, and I haven't been able to send them away since, so they want to stick around. And I'm glad that they are doing that, and they have committed to formal membership. And again, if you have questions about formal membership, I'd love to talk to you. We won't do that today, right now, during this time period, but I'd love to talk to you about it, why we think it's important, why we encourage you to do it. So, Ben, if you would come up to the mic, introduce your family, and maybe you could answer the question, why are you becoming a member, a formal member here at Summit Bible Church? My name is Ben Marquez. This is my beautiful wife, Anna, and my son, Matthew. He's also in the music ministry. And I have beautiful daughters, uh, Melissa and Melina. Um, you know, I'm, I'm excited today, man. I, I feel really, well, nervous, like my wife, and uh, excited at the same time, you know, because... I kind of, I kind of think of this. The last time I felt this way is when I married my wife uh, just about 21 years ago. I was a little nervous and a little excited, and um, also um, a lot of friends that I had at the time um, kind of were discouraging me from getting married. Once you just shack up, or once you just, you know, it's just a piece of paper, anyways, and this, that, and the other, and. Um, and, but uh, according to the scriptures, it's much more than that, you know, and, um, and I've been so overwhelmingly blessed, I can't even explain in words how much uh, my family means to me and how much God has done in our lives. And I tell you, man, God is powerful, yes. you know, and uh, I give him all the glory and all the praise for all he's done in our lives, you know, and um, it, it's not just a piece of paper, it's not just coming up here you know, formality, you know, becoming a member. As I, you know, as I read through the scriptures, it talks about being uh, members of one another and Jesus Christ coming back in the rapture for his church, for all of us, you know, as a body. You know, we're not lone rangers for God. Right. You know, we're not individual. I tell you, the, the devil wants us to, to think that way. And the devil wants to isolate us and think, oh, well, I don't have to do that. I never had to become a member somewhere else but i tell you man the devil's a liar man and um i was reading this morning in ephesians chapter six you know where the bible says uh in verse 10 uh, uh finally brethren or it's about time that you stand strong in the lord and stand in the strength of his might and put on the breastplate of of righteousness and and the feet to uh preach the gospel and and just talking all these scriptures about praying with one another man i'll tell you the devil wants us to think that we're uh, fighting the fight alone, but we're not, man. I tell you, there's people praying for you, and there's people praying for me, and people praying for my family, man. We don't have to do this alone, man. I tell you, there's strength in numbers, you know. I remember one of the old hymns, uh, uh, the one of the uh, uh, hymns says, um, God got an army, you know. We're an army, man. We're, we're not single-out soldiers, you know. We will fight the fight together, the fight of faith, and... Um, and don't give up, man. Don't listen to the lies of the devil, man. Keep coming and, and stay linked up and, um, and stay strong in the Lord, man, because there's always someone praying for you and someone always here to, to lift you up. And I just give God all the glory and, and all the praise for giving this opportunity to um, finally become members and stuff. And um, I believe there's a whole huge uh, um, ocean wide of blessings coming our way. I tell you, uh, Last year was a little struggle. We had a few, you know, medical scares, and, uh, you know, we fell, you know, as a family. But I tell you, when, when, um, 
you know, God says to get together and, and, and pray together, I tell you, powerful things happen, man. Powerful things happen. So, um, uh, again, God gets all the glory. Amen. I'm being preached to, brother. <laughs> That's good. Well, let me give you this uh, this book. We give to you a little note in there for you guys called the Cross-Centered Life. That's what we we are we hope to be about. That's what we're striving for to be a a church that keeps the gospel the main thing. And so let me give you to that. I want to encourage you to to read that. Also, right now, I'd like before we I pray for the family. If you are a formal member here, if you would just stand at this time. And would you join me as we, as we lift this family up to the Lord? Father in heaven, I, I praise you. I praise you. Along with my brother Ben, I, I give you great praise and, and honor and worship because you're due all of it. You deserve every bit of it that I can possibly give you. Father, I thank you for your sovereignty, for your providence, for your power, for drawing this family two years ago here to Summit Bible Church. You've done that with many people now since we've been open, Father. And I, I just think about all the different people you've, you've done that with. And, and, Lord, you are building an army. You are building an army to take your gospel to the city of Fontana and beyond to the surrounding cities, to the state of California, throughout the U.S., and, Lord willing, through to the world. Father, that's your army, an army that's ready to to preach and to proclaim the gospel, the good news concerning Jesus Christ, that sinners might be saved. Father, I thank you for for bringing in some more members of that army here. I thank you for Ben and Anna and and their family, and, and Father, for the blessing that they are, that they have been. I thank you about how you've, how you've given such great talents to Matthew and, and how he's expressed those and used those for your glory in the band and and, Father, just how this family has continually been here and consistent and served. And, and, Lord, I thank you for them. And I trust that you will continue to work in them, work through them, grow them, mature them. And, Lord, continue to use them to be a blessing. Father, I also ask that we would come alongside them. That we are not alone in this thing, as, you have, as Ben said. We are not alone. You never designed it to be that way. But you, in your mind, the church was a, a body of local believers committed to one another, committed to you first, and because of that, committed to one another, willing to stand next to one another, to hold each other up, to encourage one another, strengthen one another, love on one another, exhort one another, rebuke one another when that's necessary, keeping all, each other on the right road, Father, the road that leads to you. So, Lord, I, I thank you, and I pray that we will do that as a body, and we will encourage them and come alongside them, and I trust you will continue to empower them to do that very same thing for us. To you, Father, be all glory and praise and honor. And it is in Jesus' name that we come before you now and lift up our prayers. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thanks, brother. Okay. You ready to get into the Word of God? Me too. Me too. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're looking at verses 14 through 17 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, you can flip open one of those blue Bibles located underneath the seats around you and turn that to page 939. That'll bring you to the section that we are looking at today in God's Holy Word. The scriptures, we're stepping into a new section now of Romans, and I titled this message, Gospel Enthusiasm, Gospel Enthusiasm. So do you guys know what an enthusiast is? Have you heard that term, enthusiast? Let me define it for you if you haven't. It's 
It's really simply somebody who is enthusiastic about something. Okay? Enthusiastic about something. And, and just so that we're real clear, enthusiastic means passionate interest in or eagerness or excitement about something. Okay? With me so far? So, for instance, there are car enthusiasts. I know there's a few in here. I'm looking at one right now. A car enthusiast. I won't make you identify yourself, but I know, you know, you're in here. There's nothing wrong with any of these things. They're all great. I'm just pointing out some examples before I go farther down the list. Car enth- So a car enthusiast, he knows about cars. He doesn't know about just one car. He knows about all kinds of cars. And he knows details that you and I will never know and probably don't care to know. But he knows them or she knows them. Could be a she car enthusiast, right? Yes. And so that's the kind of, you got that idea. How about sports enthusiasts? I could go down the list, but there's golf enthusiasts, right? They spend their time in golf. They know all about golf. They know all the clubs. They know what's going on. Baseball enthusiasts. Any baseball enthusiasts out there? One. Excellent. Okay. Soccer enthusiasts. I know we have soccer enthusiasts because every time, okay, there's one. uh, Because if we drive by, you can look to the field on the right, and it's filled every Sunday with people who are committed to, excited about soccer. There are art enthusiasts. I'm not sure what that is, but uh, no, those are people that like art. They're into art. They go to museums. They know those names that you know are hard to say. They know what pieces of work are worth and so on and so forth. There's food enthusiasts. Now, wait a minute. This doesn't mean that you like to eat. Michael, it doesn't mean you like to eat. That's that you don't qual. Okay, you can qualify as a food enthusiast if you if you know a lot about the different types of food and and ways to make food and. You know, those kind of things. So it doesn't mean you'd like to eat. That's just, uh, but it includes that, certainly. How about music enthusiasts? They love all kinds of music, right? They know music. They know the, the people who sing the music. They know when they wrote the album. Those kind of, you, you get the idea? There are gun enthusiasts. Yes, and so we have one in the back for certain, but there's a couple in here, gun enthusiasts, and they will tell you every detail about guns and so on and so on. You get the idea? Enthusiasts, right? Now, typically, oh, I might have missed one. There's wine enthusiasts, too. I forgot I was going to mention that one, too. Wine enthusiasts. Those are people who like to wine. No, guys, come on. No, wine enthusiasts, you know, they know all about wines. They know the places to go to get the good wines. Is that dangerous that I said that in church? No, it's not. It's not. It's not. So they know those kind of things. They know the vineyards. They know the places, the good bottles and all of this. They can tell you all about wines, the smell, the aroma. I mean, stuff that most of us, we don't know. We don't understand that. But they know. They know every bit of it. And typically enthusiasts are not shy about their passion or embarrassed by it. Right? I mean, when someone starts talking to me, like Steve, about cars... There is no sense at all that he's embarrassed about his enthusiasm about cars. Or when Tony begins to, to rattle off guns to me about guns, he's not embarrassed. He's not shy. He's loving it. He's excited about it. Now, I know, Tony, Tony, I know you love the Lord Jesus Christ first and foremost, but he also has a passion for guns, which I share with him, just not as much. I just don't have it as much. I don't know as much as he does. I haven't committed myself to those kind of things, Okay. But they're passionate about it. Do you get it? Right? In fact, they enjoy sharing it. They enjoy. You can tell. You can see the excitement that rises in their face and their eyes when they begin to talk about what they're enthusiastic about. Whether it be cars or food or art or guns or sports or whatever it is. Now, listen. If you know the Apostle Paul, if you know him, and the only way you would know him Primarily is through the reading of the scriptures, writing at least 13 of the New Testament letters. That's how you would get to know this man. And we will get to know him as we move through the the book of Romans because he shares his life with us. If you know the Apostle Paul, then you know what you know about him? He is a gospel enthusiast. He is a gospel enthusiast. He had enthusiasm about the gospel and he was passionate, beloved about sharing it with others. The gospel is what occupied his mind, his heart, his conversations, his relationships. It is the gospel that occupied that man's entire life. How about you? 
How about you? Would you describe yourself as a gospel enthusiast? Could you describe yourself as a gospel enthusiast? My hope and prayer, beloved, is that by the time we finish Romans, maybe before that, I hope, because it could take a while, my hope and prayer is that all of us, every single one of us, would be able to say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I am a gospel enthusiast. Absolutely. The gospel is awesome. It is awesome. And I am excited about it. Passionate to talk about it. It's the greatest thing ever. And I am eager because it is so great. I am eager to tell others about the gospel. I don't shy away. I don't pull back. The only thing I talk about is the gospel. Past couple of weeks, we've been looking at verses 7 through 13 of chapter 1. We had a break in there for Easter. And in that section, Paul shared with the readers of the letter, which originally were the Christians who lived in Rome, most of whom, by the way, Paul had never met personally. He shared with them, and I'm just, this is by way of review, about how he gave thanks to God to them or for them for what he heard God was doing in their lives and how he consistently and frequently prayed for them. And how he longed to come and see them. Why? So that he might spiritually strengthen them, establish them in their faith. And finally, how he hoped to see others in Rome, among those in Rome, the capital city at the time of the Gentile world. He hoped to see many others place their faith in Christ and be saved. Just as he had already experienced in his fruitful gospel preaching ministry among the Gentiles in other parts of the Roman Empire east of Rome. So picking up right where we left off in verse 13 last week, we now come to verse 14 and we're going to be reading down to verse 17. So look at the text with me if you would. Pop your eyes on the Bible. Romans chapter 1 verses 14 through 17. Paul writes these words, I am under obligation both to Greeks And to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This morning, if you have an outline, you can see in there, we're going to begin to consider three related reasons why the Apostle Paul was excited to tell others about the gospel so that we might be eager to share it as well. That's where we're going. Three reasons, three related reasons. First, gospel pride. Second, gospel power. And third, gospel perfection. Gospel perfection. Now, this morning... We're only going to cover the first point, okay? Just the first one, gospel pride. But it's very important that you do not, let me say it in a positive, that you come back next week. Now, I expect you to be here anyway, but I'm just saying, don't miss next week because this is really a package and I'm breaking up the package for the sake of time. Points two and three are drawn The gospel power, gospel perfection are drawn from verses 16 and 17. And these two verses in Romans chapter 1 really capture the heart, the very heart of the gospel that Paul will unfold to us in more detail in the following chapters of Romans. And it is that gospel that has inspired and continues to inspire great worship and praise to God. It is the very gospel that has caused many men and women throughout history to make incredible sacrifices, even giving up their lives 
Okay? That's the gospel we're talking about. A gospel that has the ability to cause people to surrender all, to walk away from all, and put themselves in situations, in hostile situations where they could die, and some and many have died, proclaiming that gospel. That's how awesome this stuff is. It is the gospel that keeps producing. Since it has been introduced to us, it keeps producing gospel enthusiasts who are passionate about its message and just can't keep their mouths shut about the good news concerning Jesus Christ, which is the absolute greatest news this world will ever know, beloved. Today, we're just going to look at verses 14 through 16a. Just those verses. And in verse uh, 13, as we looked at last week, Paul mentioned his desire to come to Rome so that he might see more Gentiles be saved. We looked at that in detail last week. And in mentioning Gentiles, which in case you don't know, is a term that is generally used to describe people who are not Jewish. Okay? Gentiles is a term that is generally used in the Bible to describe people that are not Jewish. So, Probably that would include all of us in here. We would come under that title as Gentiles, okay? Does that make sense to you? Unless you're Jewish. Regarding that term Gentiles that he uses at the end of verse 13, now in verse 14, he makes some additional comments regarding Gentiles and his obligation to all of them. That's where we're going to start. We'll start there. Romans 1, look back at the text, verse 14. Paul says, I, Paul, am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now stick with me because you didn't probably see the word Gentiles pop up anywhere there. But he's talking about Gentiles. We'll get to that in a second. The Apostle Paul, a Jew. Okay? If you don't know that, it's important to know that. He was a Jew. He said he was under obligation. Let's start there with that statement. What does that mean? What is he talking about? Well, based on the context of Romans and what we know about Paul from other places in the scriptures, in the word of God, the obligation Paul is referring to here concerns his obligation to preach the gospel to people. Okay, His obligation to preach the gospel to people but not just to his people or race, which would have been the Jewish people. And let me remind you about those people. This was a people or a nation that was chosen by God himself to be his people. This is the very people that God gave to his holy law. He didn't give it to the world. He gave it to the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. He gave to them his holy law and covenants. And it was to these people that God promised the Messiah, the Savior. To these people he promised this one. And it was through these people that that one came, the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus, he came through the Jewish people. He was a Jew. But Paul was not to just preach, a Jew was not to just preach the gospel to the chosen people of God, the Jewish people, the people who had the law, the covenants, the people who were promised the Messiah, the people through whom the Messiah came. But rather he was to preach the good news concerning Jesus Christ, that is what the gospel is, to the non-Jewish people as well. To the Gentiles. All the Gentiles. And Paul will explain that in verse 14 where he says, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and foolish. We're going to come back to that in a second. Just hold that thought. But he's talking about all the Gentiles there. And if you don't know, you should know that the Gentiles at this time were generally those who were notorious for worshiping all kinds of false gods. Okay? 
You had the Jewish people called out by God to worship the one and only true God. Then you have the rest of the people, the Gentiles, who worshipped everything but the one and only true God. They had all types of idols. They rejected the God of Israel. They rejected the God of the Jewish people as the one and only true God. And by the way, they were even unfriendly and even hostile, the Gentiles, generally speaking, to the Jewish people. But even so, this is what's amazing, even so, Paul was called to preach the gospel specifically to them. He was set apart to be the apostle. Let me me remind you what apostle is. That is God's appointed and authorized representative. He was appointed by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. These God-haters. These idol-worshippers. And you can find that in Romans 11. You can find it in many places. You can find it as you read through the book of Acts. But if you want to get quickly point that out, that he is the apostle to the Gentiles. Romans 11.13, he identifies himself as that way. You can see the history of him becoming the apostle to the Gentiles as you read through the book of Acts. But you can look at Acts chapter 9, verse 15. You can look at chapter 22, verse 21. You can look at chapter 26, verses 17 through 18. You could also look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7. Those are some places you could look to see that Paul himself was specifically set apart by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to take to them the gospel of God. So at the beginning of the church age, Paul, the apostle Paul, was the one who was primarily responsible. And when I'm talking about the beginning of the church age, Jesus has died, he's resurrected, he's ascended, his power has come, he's sent his Holy Spirit. The church has been born, beginning of the church age. And now Christ is building his church, but not just among the Jewish people, but among the Gentiles as well. And the Apostle Paul was the one who was primarily at that time responsible for proclaiming and explaining and defending the gospel to those who, for the most part, up to that point, were spiritually lost, separated from God and had rejected him as the one and only God and worshipped false gods instead. Okay? It wasn't that they weren't worshipers. They were. Because all people are worshipers. God has designed us to worship. But in their foolish rebellion, instead of worshiping the one and only true God, they worshiped idols. They worshiped the creation. They worshiped gods of their imagination. Now, back to the phrase concerning those whom Paul was obligated to preach the gospel to, or to the Gentiles, which Paul defines here in verse 14 as both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. You see that in your text? Both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. Why is Paul making those distinctions among the Gentiles? Why didn't he just say to the Gentiles? Why didn't he just say that? Well, in some places he does. But here he makes some distinctions. And this might be helpful for you to understand what's going on. I'll give you some information. The Gentiles in Rome... At that time, like many at that time who lived within the Roman Empire, Rome was the occupying power of the world at that time. They had been influenced by the previous occupying power, which was Greece or the Greeks. And they had, as a result, been influenced by Greek culture and language. Okay? The Gentiles. Many spoke Greek. Greek was, for the most part, the common language. Many spoke Greek. And in fact, the letter of Romans was written in Greek to those in Rome. And all those who spoke Greek, to some degree, assimilated or absorbed or took on the Greek culture. Okay? So here we have these people, Gentiles, not Jews, speaking Greek, acting Greek, absorbing the Greek culture. So it became acceptable to refer to them as Greeks, to refer to these Gentiles as Greeks, even though they were not necessarily born in Greece. Does that make sense to you so far? Okay, so they were referred to as Greeks. Now, 
for those Gentiles, remember Gentiles is just a common way of referring to those who are not Jewish, for those Gentiles who had not yet adopted the Greek culture, and they, they didn't speak in Greek, or they didn't speak Greek very well, they were sometimes called, in your English translation, barbarians. Barbarians. And in the Greek, the Greek word behind our English translation of that is barbaros. Barbaros, which we pronounce now, translated over to English, barbarian. Why is that? Why were they called that? Well, we're told that when a Greek-speaking person was listening to the conversation of a foreigner, a non-Greek person, the language sounded to them like bar, 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 bar. I'm not kidding. I'm not joking. It sounded to them unintelligible, unsophisticated, not eloquent, inarticulate. Mumbling, if you will, to the Greek. So they would call these people barbarians or barbaros. Bar, 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 bar. That's how they talk. You see? The NIV, when it gets to this word, it is barbarians or barbaros. So he says to the Greeks and to the barbaros or the barbarians. The NIV just translates it, one English version of the Bible, just says non-Greeks. Non-Greeks. And by that, it would be those Gentiles who had not adopted a Greek culture. They didn't speak Greek. They weren't fluent in Greek. They didn't act like Greeks. They didn't talk like Greeks. They were the foreigner. They were the barbaros. Additionally, from the Greeks' perspective, the foreigner was thought to not be as educated or cultured or as sophisticated as the Greeks were. It was the Greeks who were the teachers. It was the Greeks who were the philosophers. It was the Greeks who were the thinkers. It was the Greeks whose language was the the beautiful language and the main language that was being used by the people of the day. So the the Greeks believed themselves to be the educated ones. And in many ways they were the enlightened ones or even the refined ones. So Paul says, listen, in regard to the Gentiles, I am obligated to preach the gospel to the Greeks and to the non-Greeks, to the barbaros, if you will, to those who are learned and to those who are unlearned, to the educated and to the uneducated, to the cultured and the uncultured, to the sophisticated and the unsophisticated. Or to say it another way, Paul was obligated to preach the gospel to all races and classes within the Gentile world. The bottom line is that these two phrases here that Paul uses in verse 14 were used by him in their historical context to cover the whole of Gentile humanity. That's what he's saying. I am obligated to preach the gospel to every single Gentile, to the Greeks and the barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. I'm obligated to preach it to every single one of them. God shows no partiality, and therefore Paul showed no partiality. Paul knew that all, every single one are sinners. All, because of that, are in need of a Savior, And that the gospel was and is a message that is to be proclaimed to all people. It is a good message for every sinner under the sun who will hear it and respond to it in faith. Now that's that passage right there. That's that section. Now while Paul was well aware of his obligation to preach the gospel to the Gentile world... You know what? It was not something that he hated or thought of as a burden. You know, when we think of obligation, I think all too often we think, oh, I have an obligation to do this or do that. But when Paul talked about his obligation to take the gospel to the entire Gentile world, he did not think like that. He did not feel like that. 
Rather, according to verse 14, he was, or 15, he was eager, eager to preach the gospel to those who were in Rome, to those Gentiles, every single one of them, cultured, uncultured, educated, not educated, sophisticated, not so sophisticated. Every single one of them, he was eager to proclaim, to share, to speak the gospel to those people. In other words, beloved, he was enthusiastic and excited about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with others. About telling every single sinner. Now listen, this is what he would tell them. This is what we get to tell people when we share the gospel. Telling every single sinner that they can be saved or rescued from the wrath of God that is to come. And how they can be forgiven of all their sins. And not only that, but set free from sins and slaving power now in this life. And how they can become beloved and treasured children of the one and only true God. You got all those idols out there? Let me tell you how you can become a child of the, of the one true and living God. And how, here's what else he would tell them, how they can forever be reconciled to God, their actual creator, the only creator. And be united with him now and forevermore. And get this, he was excited to tell them how they could have peace, joy, and satisfaction that this world will never be able to provide them. But they so desperately need. And he would tell them how they could truly have life. You think you have life? You don't know life. Until you know life in Jesus Christ. He would tell them how to have that abundant life. A life that is only found in a genuine. Saving relationship. With the one who is life. Jesus Christ the Lord. And then starting in verse 16. Now here we go. Paul begins to share some reasons why he is so eager to preach the gospel as he has stated in verse 15. Why he is so eager to tell all who have not heard about his crucified and risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. And we're just going to look at the first part of this verse. Listen, you want to know why I am eager to preach the gospel to you in Rome? Huh. Four, you could, you could put the word because there. Because I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed. And that brings us to the first point in our outline. Believe it or not. Gospel pride. Gospel pride. That's what I'm, I'm calling this. And I just want to camp here with you this morning. I want to camp out this verse, spend some time here just at this point. And you got you got to hear the rest because that will reinforce why the gospel was so awesome to Paul. Okay, you got to get the rest. You got to hear about gospel power as he'll, he'll unfold in verse 16. And you got to hear about gospel perfection, what the gospel does to the sinner. Wow, it's awesome. It's awesome, but you've got to come back next week for that. But right now, gospel pride. Paul was eager to tell others about his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, eager to tell them how they too could receive the free gift of salvation, how they too could receive the one and only spiritual cure for their deadly disease called sin. He was eager to preach the gospel. But why? Because he was not ashamed of it. He was not ashamed of it. He had, as I said, what I'm calling gospel pride. He was, he was proud of the gospel, proud of his message concerning Jesus Christ, and consequently was enthusiastic about making it known to others. You know why? Because Paul really understood the infinite worth and value of the gospel. He got it. He knew it. He knew, beloved, of its unique power. Hear me. He knew of its unique power to save 
sinners and to forever justify them before a holy God. Nothing else can do that. Only the gospel. Only the message concerning Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Now let me, let me give you an example so we can just talk about this, of being ashamed. We'll see how this works out. Because you all know, I think you all know what it means to be ashamed. So I want to go to the other side of this. Because he mentions, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Well, what does that look like, being ashamed of something? Well, when I was a kid growing up, I, didn't, I was telling Ben and Anna this the other day when we were interviewing them, talking to them. Like probably many of you, I didn't grow up with much as far as monetary stuff goes. I don't know if you guys remember the store, Jemco. Do any of you remember Jemco? Well, Jemco for us back in the day was like a, like a Walmart, I guess, or a ver- it wasn't really, it didn't, maybe it tried to be a Target, I don't know. You know what I'm talking about. It was like, it was the place, it had a bunch of everything, and it had clothes, and so it was one of the cheapest places to, probably to get clothes, unless you were going to the swap meet or something, or something like that. This is where my, mo- my mom would buy my clothes. Now, growing up, I didn't know anything about anything. I didn't know we were poor. I didn't know. I didn't know, okay? And I lived with other poor kids, so we looked the same, and so everything was fine. Until I got out of uh, elementary school. And when I, when I left elementary school, I went to Montview and Pomona. I went there first to sixth grade. My parents and the teachers thought, you know what? You can do something with your life. You have a brain. So we want you to, we want you to go to these schools in Claremont. Now, if you don't know Claremont, Claremont is not Pomona. Let me just say that. I don't, I don't know what else to say. It's not anywhere. It's like the opposite, okay? I grew up in Pomona. Now, I'm still in Pomona. They want me to go to Claremont. I'm a kid. I don't know any different. In Claremont, the kids, now I'll give you an example. The kids, they, have, they don't get their clothes at Jimco, okay? They don't get their clothes at Jimco. They live in really nice, big houses. There's nothing wrong with any of this, okay? So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm just saying this is what it was. So here I am. And I remember one day this kid in our school, he asked me. There were kids in our school, beloved, in this Claremont intermediate school, and then eventually I went on to the high school. They were actors and actresses. That's the kind of kids that went there, you know? I remember this kid asked me one day, hey, where'd you get your sweater? Jimco. Oh, he thought that was hilarious. So my name became Jimco from there on out. And I, and I, you know, over time you start to realize, oh, okay, you see that you start, and I started to become kind of ashamed of the fact that I, I, I didn't have, and they had, and it got so bad because in high school it got worse. The kids were were dropped off in Mercedes Benz, Porsches, BMWs. And the kids that were older were driving Mercedes-Benz, Porsches. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like, here I am now. I'm living in Ontario, which is you know, about the same as Pomona, really. I'm living in Ontario. And my dad, you know what he has? A beater, a station wagon. Do you remember those? With, it's like barely brown. I didn't think it, you know what I'm saying? It, and to me as a kid, it was nothing. But now... I realize the distinction, okay? And everyone's like, what is that coming into the... I was ashamed, beloved. I was ashamed. I was ashamed. So I didn't want my dad to drop me off. I said, could you drop me off up here? No, way up here is fine. I'll walk. It's okay. I was ashamed. Do you understand what I'm talking about? I was ashamed. I didn't want to associate with that. I was ashamed of that. I didn't want anybody to know about that about my poverty, if you'd call it that. And part of the reason why, and this will all make sense here in a second as we wrap this, part of the reason why is I was a teen, right? I was a teen, and teens are very concerned about what people think about them. Do you, do you agree with me about that, parents? Teens, I don't know, you know, you may or may not agree, but you are. You're very concerned about what other people think of you. But you know what? That doesn't go away. I wish it went away. I wish as an adult that went away. And you stop caring so much about what people thought about you or didn't think about you. But it just kind of morphs and becomes a different thing. But it's still there. It's still there. And because I was concerned, 
Who cares if I got pulled up in a station wagon, right? But I was so concerned about what people thought of me. So ashamed that, you know, drop me off. Don't, I don't want anybody to know. Now, I'll come back to that in a second. As we know, not everyone felt like Paul did about the gospel. Not everyone felt like Paul did about the gospel. Not everyone was enthusiastic about the gospel, excited about the gospel. In fact, many mocked and ridiculed it. Just like they do today. Just like they do today. To them, the gospel was nothing more than a pathetic station wagon. Pathetic. Little did they know it was the finest automobile they could ever, ever put their eyes upon. But to them, that's what it was. The the Gentiles in Paul's day, now listen, they thought it was a stupid and ridiculous message. The gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23 that he preached Christ crucified. That's what he preached. And he said to the Gentiles, it was foolishness. There were many who mocked Paul and the other Christians because they worshipped a crucified Savior. Now you might be going, well, what's the big deal? Well, one reason was crucifixion was reserved, they knew this, for the lowest of criminals, okay? For the worst of the worst. Those are the people that were put on a cross and crucified in that way. A shameful, horrific death. And it was done to those who were the lowest in society. In the minds of the mockers, they could not comprehend how someone who was crucified could ever be their savior, let alone someone you would worship. You're kidding me, right? A crucified Savior? They didn't get it, beloved. They didn't get it. Foolishness is what they called the gospel. But Paul knew that what they called foolishness was actually the wisdom of God. Not just any wisdom, but the very wisdom of God that brings salvation to any and every sinner who will believe who will see the gospel for what it really is and embrace it for the awesomeness that it represents. For anyone who will trust in Jesus Christ and what He alone has done to permanently solve the sin problem that every human being has. See, Paul wasn't embarrassed by the gospel. He wasn't. Even though some people mocked it, or thought it to be worthless news. He knew what it really was. And he knew what it really does. Which we're going to talk more about in a few weeks. As we look at Paul's statements here in verse 16 and 17. And knowing that caused Paul to face all kinds of very difficult and hostile situations in his ministry. With boldness. Boldness, beloved. He didn't shrink away from preaching the gospel and he didn't compromise it to make it more acceptable, to make it sound better to those who didn't like its message. Beloved, listen to me. Many other, unlike many other things that people are enthusiastic about, right? If I got up here and started talking to you about my car enthusiasm, most of you would be like, yeah, you wouldn't be hostile. I mean, you would because you'd be like, what are you doing? But I'm saying in another, in another setting, not in a church or something like that. If I just started sharing with you my, my enthusiasm for cars or for music or for food or for sports, I, I will not get hostility. You'd be like, that's cool, man. That's cool. You might even join me in it. You might, hey, tell me more about it. You're excited about it. But it is not that way with the gospel. The true gospel is a message that many in this world find repulsive and unacceptable. Do you hear me? Repulsive and unacceptable. So you've got to understand when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That's a big statement. I'm proud of this thing. I'm proud of the message I bring to people concerning my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They may mock it. They may ridicule it. They may think it's foolishness. But I am not ashamed. And let me tell you why there's so much hostility. Just a few reasons. First, it's a message that says this. 
every human being is born, or that is born, they're all born. Every human being that is born into this world, you know what they are? According to the word of God, they're sinners. And as sinners, they cannot, hear me, cannot do anything to earn God's favor or make themselves right with God. Did you hear what I just said? Every sinner, every human being that is born can't do anything to make themselves right with the holy God. And yet, that is what people want to do. That is what they keep trying to do. They want to earn their way into heaven. And so, they reject the gospel and they seek out religious systems that will honor them in that. Here, here's a religious system that will allow you to get to heaven by what you do. Do you like that? I do like that. Here you go. And they do that, beloved, because that way they can maintain their sinful and foolish pride. They can say, I got to heaven because I was a good person. I got to heaven because I did blah, 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 blah. I got to heaven because I went to church. I got to heaven because I confessed my sins. I got to heaven because I got baptized. I got to heaven because I read my Bible. I got to heaven because I helped people. I was a nice person. And the Bible says, no, 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 no. You are dead in your sins and trespasses. You as a sinner, as a guilty sinner condemned before God, you can't do anything. You can't make up for it. You can't make yourselves right with the holy God. You have to cast yourself upon the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ the Lord. That's all you can do in order to be saved. And that is all you must do. The Bible's clear. All are condemned and headed to hell. All are condemned and headed to hell, beloved. That's the gospel. Unless, unless they embrace Jesus Christ by faith as their Lord and Savior. Unless they fall before him as weak and helpless sinners and believe that he is the only way to be saved. Placing their trust in him and surrendering to him as their Lord. But guess what? Again, people rebelliously and sinfully this was all us before we came to Christ, beloved. So we're not better than them. That was us before we came to Christ. Rebelliously and sinfully refused to submit and give their lives to the Lord. Well, I don't want to do that. Instead, they want to be the Lord of their lives. What do you mean, Lord? I don't know if I like that. Yeah, master, king. I don't know about all that. I like to be the master of my life. I want to make my own rules. I don't want nobody up in all my business. then you will die in your sins. And you will face the Lord Jesus Christ as your judge. You will never know him as your savior. That's the gospel. Additionally, the gospel says this. It says that only through Jesus Christ can anyone be saved. That is the gospel, beloved. That is the good news concerning Christ. It's only through him. You know what's good about it? Anyone can be saved. Any sinner. It doesn't exclude people. Any sinner can be saved. But they must be saved through Jesus Christ. I mean, in a works-based salvation, i got to do stuff. So if I don't do enough, maybe I'll be kept out. But with Jesus Christ, all those who will come and bow before him in faith and rely upon his sacrifice, they will be saved. And yet, people don't like the idea that Jesus is the only way. Do you know why Jesus is the only way? Do you know why that's the message of the gospel? Do you know why that's the message Paul preached and was not ashamed of? Do you know why? Because that's the absolute truth. All right? That's the truth. It's not an opinion. It's not a theory. It's not a philosophy. It's not man's idea. But it is a fact. Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved, beloved, according to the gospel. And so, 
It is a fact that cannot be changed just because people don't believe it. You can't change a fact because you don't believe it. I don't believe in gravity. I don't, I don't, I don't. Fine. It doesn't change it. It doesn't change that fact that when you jump, you will go down to the ground because gravity is a truth. It's a fact. You can scream and shout from the rooftops that Jesus cannot be the only way. That there must be other ways. What about all those other religions? What about them? What about them? They're false. That's the gospel, beloved. Every religion that says there is another way. Jesus is not the only way. They are false, beloved. Because that's true. It doesn't matter if we don't like it. It doesn't matter how much we protest it. It doesn't matter how much people say, no, 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 there must be other ways. There are not. And so people get hostile. They get hostile. They don't like you saying Jesus is the only way. They don't like you saying you're a sinner. And apart from the grace of God and what he has done through Jesus Christ, you cannot be saved. You cannot earn your way to heaven. They don't like that. He is Lord. I don't want him to be Lord. They don't like that. I said all that to point this out. That generally speaking, for one reason or another, people who are spiritually blind, the same people we were before we came to Christ, okay? Those who are spiritually blind, who are lost, who are not saved, they can be very hostile to the gospel, and more specifically, to those proclaiming the gospel. You're the one speaking it, you're going to take the heat. It was true in Paul's day. It remains true today. And because of that, there is no doubt in my mind that all of us, all of us have been tempted to become ashamed of the gospel, to become embarrassed of it. We're still concerned about what people think about us. And we don't really like hostility. Honest, we don't like it, probably. If you like it, that's kind of strange. But we don't like it. We don't like taking that heat. It hurts. It stings. And so when that happens, you and I are tempted to draw back, to become ashamed, to say, I, I don't want to talk about this. I'll keep the gospel to myself. I don't even want to let you know I'm a Christian. I don't want to bring that up because I know if I bring that up, you might not like me anymore. Just like me pulling up in my station wagon. Who cares what these kids think? Now, listen, that station wagon was a piece of junk. It was. But the gospel's no station wagon. I don't, I can't compare it to the, I just saw this morning all these wonderful cars, $200,000 cars. I can't compare. You go, whoa. I go, whoa, yeah. But I can't compare the gospel. That it, nothing compares to the gospel, to the glories of the gospel. Even that word awesome is really a word best reserved for the gospel. And yet, because we're concerned about what people think and because people are hostile to us, because they hate the gospel, they hate what it says about sin, they hate what it says about them, we become ashamed. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I'm going to tell you why I'm eager to go there in Rome and preach among the Gentiles, the very ones who call it foolishness. I am not ashamed of this thing. Because it is the glory of God. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You know, I was just thinking, I'm over time as usual, but I was thinking how messed up our world is. Just think with me how backwards we are right now, beloved. Gospel pride. I could not say this in good faith, that gospel pride is what characterizes our culture. Right? You wouldn't say that. Gospel pride is not what characterizes our culture. Sadly, it is not even what characterizes many churches. And by gospel pride, let me remind you, I mean people who are enthusiastic about the gospel, unashamed of the gospel, boldly preaching the gospel. To friends, to co-workers, to neighbors, to anyone who will give them an ear. But unfortunately, there is another kind of pride that does currently characterize our culture and unbelievably even characterizes some so-called churches you know what that is gay pride that's where we are now 
Do you understand that? Gay pride, beloved. Think about it. We are called to gospel pride. Our culture is consumed right now with gay pride. The lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, the LGBT community. That's who they are. That's how they identify themselves. They are not ashamed of their message. They're not ashamed. Not anymore. And they are boldly and enthusiastically preaching it to their friends and to their co-workers and to their neighbors and to anyone who will listen. And beloved, it is a message that calls something good that God calls sin. God calls it sin. And if you're not sure about that, if you are got kind of caught up in all this gay pride, Wait until we get to the end of Romans 1, because Paul will address it. He will address it. Do you see how crazy things are? The prophet Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And beloved, that is right where we are. Gay, gayness, all of that, good. The gospel, which includes a definition of sin, which includes homosexuality as a sin. Bad, evil, intolerant. You see it? And we take that and the world around us, our culture is quickly caving. They are. This train has already left the station, beloved. And we are tempted by these things to draw back, to be ashamed of the very gospel that has saved our souls and the only one that can save the soul of the homosexual or anybody else for that matter. The world needs now and has always needed more than anything else. From the deepest pits of my heart, I cry out, this is what we need. Christians to be enthusiastic about the gospel, the true gospel, not to back away, not to compromise, but to have gospel pride, not to be embarrassed, not to be ashamed. When people mock it, and they will, when they are hostile toward it, and they will, and that will increase, beloved. I promise you, it's already increasing. It's already increasing. I see a time, not prophesying anything like that, not too long from now, where anybody who stands against homosexuality or just identifies it even, as the Bible identifies it, as sin, will lose their tax-exempt status. Churches. Already there's a bill on the floor to do that for youth and youth organizations in California. And it's moving. It will pa- I am certain it will pass. You know why they're doing that? Boy Scouts. They're after Boy Scouts. They want to undo Boy Scouts. They want to take away their tax-exempt status. It's just a matter of time before it's churches. And that matters because churches functions on low, low budgets. So the tax-exempt status helps them function, you see? There'll be a time where they say, it is not okay for me to preach the word of God and say what it says. It is not okay for me to identify the truths of the gospel. So some will compromise. And they'll say, all right, let's change what the gospel says. Let's make it more okay for our culture. Beloved, right now, you and I, Those who call Christ our Lord and Savior, we have to stand up. We have to stand up. We have to take a stand, not be embarrassed, not be ashamed. And I know in the process of doing that, we're going to take hits. We're going to be tempted to back away, tempted to hide, tempted to keep our mouths shut. Have you ever been tempted? I've been tempted and I have failed. So we need the prayers of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Senior, I know you pray every week. Put this on your prayer list every week. That every brother and sister in Christ would stand up and boldly, enthusiastically proclaim the gospel to a world, to a culture that is becoming more and more hostile to it by every hour. 
We're going to need our, the encouragement of you. We're going to have to encourage one another. Come alongside each other. Get this. If you don't already know this, the use, the use, that's hard to say. The young people here, they decided to name their group unashamed. Okay? Unashamed, based on Romans 1.16. Hear me now. I hope for you guys that that becomes more than just a name. I hope it becomes the character of who you are. I hope I can look at you one day and go, unashamed of the gospel. Unashamed of the gospel. Unashamed of the gospel. And I hope by God's grace, I can look at every single one of their parents and every other adult in here, and I hope we can say to one another, unashamed of the gospel. Unashamed. For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. How could you be ashamed of that? Let's pray. Father God, I pray according to your power and strength and wisdom that your people, not only here in this local body that we call Summit, but in all of the local bodies that are truly yours across this land. Father, that we would not cave. That we would not become ashamed of the very gospel, the very message that has brought us life, that has saved us, that has rescued us from your wrath, that has made us your children, that has granted to us eternal life. Father, It is mocked, it is criticized, and we will experience hostility. But Father, by your power and your strength and your spirit that dwells within us, might we find the ability to stand up in love and encourage and speak the truth of the gospel regardless of how people receive it and regardless of how they might respond to us, Father. May we be gospel enthusiasts, not for our glory, God, but for yours, that others might be saved. Father, do that work in us, please. Regardless of what our culture does, regardless of of where America goes, may the churches here remain true to you, true to the gospel true to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And may we never compromise or hide or become ashamed of the good news concerning our Savior. It's in His name we pray, Father. Amen.